Today's guest on The Real Mike Tang Show is Doug Radke, who's back for part two. Doug is a CPA, tax director, and father. If you missed Doug's part one conversation with me, I really recommend for you to listen to it back in episode three. In today's show, Doug reveals and talks about the advantages and disadvantages of moving to a state like Nevada, what Nevada is lacking that should concern people who are thinking about moving there, the power of SBA loans and how you can start your own business, other areas in the country that you can own property or business in, how you can serve as a board member for your city, committee, and community, what nonprofit and profit organizations look for in a potential board member, and much, much more. So, Doug, I know you've uh, talked about the prospects of, um, you know, people migrating from the state of California um, to Nevada. And Nevada has been among the top five states in terms of relocation in the United States. And, you know, we kind of all know what the pros and cons are. You know, some of the pros are, you know, cost of living, uh, taxes, um, you know, very great scenery there. There's potential for a growing job market, um, tons of entertainment there, fun gambling anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see do you see yourself, you know, possibly, you know, having any, any sort of business or maybe owning some sort of residence in, in the state of Nevada yourself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was actually talking to um, partner Louie at the firm about um, about Nevada. We're really kind of, um, you know, bullish on, uh, I'd say, the Henderson area. I know a lot of, like, people in California have been picking up property, like, in the Vegas area. Um, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm actually a pretty big uh, Raiders fan. So there's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the players living out in Henderson because it's kind of the nicer, nicer part of Vegas, suburban they got some, you know, mansion houses there, kind of like for the fraction of the cost. I could probably trade up you know, from our house in the Bay Area to like, you know, real nice place like in Henderson. Um, I see a lot of opportunity there. I mean, my partner, Louis, um, you know, connections out there. And he was saying like, yeah, you know, people left and right are just kind of screaming for like, I need like a CPA, people involved in like, new businesses, um, real estate investors. So I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for like up and coming CPAs, especially like right now, since everybody's kind of migrating over there. Um, so it's definitely been on the radar. I mean, I've seen, you know, some commercial property out there um, for a good price, actually. And some of them is are occupied. I was looking into... Um, maybe even getting like some kind of SBA loan to expand kind of the existing practice there and get into another market. Like in the Bay. there's a program, yeah. um, I believe it's a 504 SBA loan. This loan allows you to take up to $5 million out. And it has a couple stipulations. Uh, if you use it to acquire property in a building, the uh, building needs to be owner occupied 51%. I'm not sure about the threshold. I think it's $50,000 per loan. Uh, $50,000 of the loan, $50,000. You need to generate a job of some kind. Um, so there's a job creation element with that. 
there's a smaller SBA loan program than this 504. I can't remember what number it is, but it's a little bit uh, a little bit more flexible. But what I was looking at this 504 um, loan was there's a lot of commercial buildings for sale, like in the Vegas area, that already have uh, tenants. And so I'm just looking at it like I could, you know, acquire like an office building that's already 75% occupied. I could bring my firm there, you know, and occupy another half of it. Um, you can sublease, you know, parts of your building. Um, you know, so really, you know, you can almost create a situation where your tenants are partially subsidizing part of your operation. And all you have to do is monetize kind of your operation, right? And um, make sure that 51% the building you're occupying is, is making money and you're paying the bills. And, you know, there's all kinds of other benefits with these SBA loans, like deferred interest. Uh, my partner actually used the SBA loan to acquire our practice. And I believe the SBA deferred and paid for the interest expense for six, um, either six months or one year. He was behind the paperwork of it, so I, I don't remember the terms right off the top of my head. But um, part of the SBA, SBA loan that he took, I, I don't think it's his 504. I think it's the other one. But it required us to uh, take over the lease from the old uh, CPA, and um, you know, which is totally fine. But, um, yeah, I see a lot of opportunity potentially with that, uh, you know, over in the Vegas area. And, um, you know, my wife really liked the fact that you've got kind of international cuisine, you know, here in the Bay Area, we're used to like good Asian food, you know, good variety. Uh, Vegas is getting pretty, if, you know, Vegas probably like better in some ways, yeah. I think, you know, than the offers you have in the Bay Area. I mean, it's amazing how they get fresh seafood, you know, like out there in the desert, but it's because they got They've got uh, refrigerated and ice uh, planes going to Vegas daily, you know, straight, mm -hmm. straight port. So, you know, they're always getting the best, you know, because of those casino, casino restaurants. Um, the challenge, I think, about the Nevada that gave me pause was, you know, they were talking about the state kind of running out of water. You know, it, it, it's the desert, let's be honest. And yeah. they're going to hit that challenge. In a, even in a 10 or 20 year period where there might not be enough water, you know, to kind of go around. So that, mm -hmm. that part does, you know, does concern me. And so I'm looking into, you know, kind of other areas too. Uh, the spot I was looking at that I thought was hot was around, um, you know, Tennessee. I got a high school mm -hmm. classmate. Her name is uh, Amy, uh, Amy Lucas, a Filipino girl. She, um, became a real estate agent out there uh, in, in the West Knoxville area, a suburb called uh, Oak Ridge. And man, there are some really nice houses out there, 200,000, know, 300,000, what you'd expect to see kind of in those Los Altos Hills kind of level. Um, it's, yeah. it's just, it's just jaw dropping. So, you know, real estate agents in other states have never been busier. So I think, you know, while California will always be like a place to be, um, pandemic really, I think, opened people's eyes to like, you know, there's other locations, there's places with lower taxes. I don't see the taxes getting, you know, lower in California. They're just talking about raising more taxes. I mean, I, I was even talking to a client, you know, this morning. He's working remote from uh, Pennsylvania, 
and uh, he never told his company that he was working for that he was living there. And I mm-hmm. told him, you know, you might want to think about think about it, or at least you know, changing the way you do your tax return because, you know, I did a rough back of the envelope calculation. It's like uh, nine or ten thousand dollar difference of tax at the state level between what he's yep. making in California and Pennsylvania, and I'm like that. That's just crazy, Mike. I mean, just think about it. Having an extra ten grand in your pocket, like you can do a lot more. So yeah. you know, the zero tax in Nevada, yeah, that is really, honestly, really, really attractive. Um, you know, there's also Texas too. I mean, I, I was thinking about that too. Um, yeah. But the reason I like Nevada is because close proximity to California. I'm still gonna have my parents here for quite a while. And, you know, there's, mm. there's other tools out there, I think, where you don't have to be full committed to, like, an area for, like, a rental property or secondary home. You can do that, um, you know, 1031 exchange, right, if you have a rental property and, you know, move, move your cost basis into another property in another state. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things you can do, I think, where, you know, people think if you buy something in another state, you just kind of all in committed. Like if I bought a house in Vegas, like I'm all in committed. You know, there's ways to uh, get ahead of the a herd, I think, and take advantage of um, you know the 1031 tax tax break. Um, you know, among other things. But um, yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of people in the U.S. have seen the benefits, mm-hmm. and um, there's like an up, you know, up climb of people moving over to the Nevada area and. You know, there are some cons to moving there, um, st- you know, stuff reporting, you know, about the education system. Yeah. Uh, you know, obvious, op- you know, prostitution mm-hmm. that goes on over there and also the extreme hot or cold weather. It gets extremely hot during the summer and then extremely cold during the winter time. Yep. Yep. Um, but if you can kind of maybe oversee some of those things. Um, there, it can it can definitely be um, a destination for a lot of families. Yep, I mean the biggest thing I think for me with a family was uh, the education thing. Nevada schools are, yep. are not are really not good, and I mean I'm down here, you know, in Mountain View, which you know on the rankings is pretty darn good schools. So, mm-hmm. you know, combined with my parents being over in Sunnyvale, which is just kind of down the street, if you really think about it, uh, it makes a move kind of harder. So. If we did do something, you know, with Nevada, probably be like a secondary home or like a rental property or like maybe we'd Airbnb it. But um, yeah. yeah, and I think like for our audience, you don't have to go all in. You don't on a on like owning property, and you know, my my previous guest from episode two, she mentioned that she has bought like around seven to eight properties between Memphis and Atlanta. And she doesn't even live in those states. She lives in Southern California and she's never even seen the freaking properties herself. She has a property manager that manages um, all of this for her. So it it can definitely be done. Um, You know, our advice would be just to kind of um, maybe buy one property out of state and, and see how it goes there. And maybe you could even visit that, that area yourself. And if you really like it and, and you think like, you know, everything around you fits, fits with your, um, you know, with your lifestyle and culture, then, then, uh, then you can possibly make that move. But yep. in the meantime, it's okay to stay put and uh, kind of venture out elsewhere. Well, well I will say, you know, California is always going to have like the income 
kind of income earning opportunities. Yeah. So if you find a way to kind of lower your cost, and you know, I'll be honest, like I'm in a great position. Like I'm, you know, living in a house my parents bought in the dot com crash. You know, so I don't have this urgency like to reduce my cost of living like maybe some other people. But you know, I've got all the benefit of like being in a higher income earning place. You know, you mentioned, you know, your second guest, you know, had bought property out in Atlanta. I mean, my partner, Hiromi, I think acquired her house in Atlanta for like somewhere between 35 and 50,000. I think it's worth like yeah. five to seven times more now. So, wow. you know, a lot of opportunities, especially I think in Atlanta, you know, you said Memphis, Tennessee, that's, that's a mm-hmm. great area. And I think Knoxville, Tennessee is a great area. So, you know, you don't have to, if, if you're coming off a California salary, especially some of these tech workers, you know, I tell my clients that are mostly, you know, they're mostly tech workers, you know, if you're buying a house and you got a, if you get a 200K salary, right, and you're buying a house in Tennessee, that's like 200 or like Atlanta, right, outer Atlanta, um, you're not really taking that much risk, you know, to be honest. And so, you know, right. getting into some kind of an investment earlier rather than later is going to give you the benefits. And then, you know, if it's a rental property, you can write off all your property tax. You can write off, you know, your mortgage interest. You can write off depreciation on the building. And I think it's just it's just shocking how so many people don't know kind of these tricks where, you know, Mike, like most of the people I serve, you know, as a CPA that have rental properties, I got one client who's got 10 rental properties in 10 different states, his, his depreciation yeah. costs and management fees for the property manager net out to on a tax basis and that loss. But this guy's still getting cash flow, like coming, coming mm-hmm. in. And, you know, he's actually got a huge passive activity loss, which is a, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole tax thing. You can't, there's, there's this concept of active income and passive income, and you cannot deduct basically your passive loss against active gains, right? It's got to be the same quote-unquote character. Um, yeah, I mean, he doesn't really pay tax on that income, and I think that's really, really powerful. Depreciation, you know, it's a real expense, right? Your building's getting wear and tear, but, you know, for example, like, you get a rental property, right? In another state, you're renting out for 30 years, you take the full depreciation. Maybe that's a place you want to live in the future. You owner occupy, you move in later, and then you do all the remodeling, you know, and yep. you get all the benefit too. So, yeah, you know, I really encourage people, you know, especially our age that are starting to get some disposable income, you know, get into, get into some property and don't be afraid to get in out of state. You can find a good property manager. You can find somebody you trust. You know, I was actually thinking about going over to Tennessee to visit, you know, Amy and check out that real estate market because it's hot, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Very good advice mm-hmm. there. You know, I see that uh, you're a board member yep. for the city of Mountain View and also other organizations mm-hmm. here in Northern California. How, you know, what, what kind of tips would you give someone who want to be more involved, you know, as a board member for either um, profit or nonprofit type organizations? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. Um, so for the city of Mountain View, I'm, I'm sitting on the, the investment review committee. So it's not really, um, I wouldn't say it's like really like a board board, 
it's uh, like these city city uh, committees and commissions. So every every city basically has uh, these kind of advisory boards, advisory commissions and committees that advise like uh, city council basically. And you know, the, usually the most important commission for any planning commission because local land use issues, laws and ordinances that regulate what you can build, you know, how you can redevelop your house. Um, you know, those are the most important uh, committees. Then there's other committees like um, stuff like cultural, community preservation. For Mountain View, you know, it's such a large city that, um, that they actually have this kind of investment review committee. So I sit on that one. Um, for the Mountain View School District, they have a bond committee because they voted and passed a couple bonds to improve the school. So I'm on the bond committee uh, for the local school district too. And then, you know, I'm the local Cal CPA board. Uh, that's the California Society of Public uh, Certified Public Accountants. And uh, I serve on a nonprofit board called uh, EHP, uh, Ecum Ecumenical Hunger Program in East Palo Alto. So those are all the boards they serve, serve on. If you're interested in getting on like a city board uh, or committee or commission, you, can, you should check out your city website. There's usually an application process. And, um, you know, you fill out the application, the interview, you know, kind of like for a job. And if they think you're fit, you get voted in. Now, say for some committees, um, some are more political than others. So I will say people that get appointed to pl uh, planning commission, for example, like in Mountain View, there's this history of people who, you know, might run for city council, but they might fall short a little bit, but they want to get involved in the city. A lot of those people end up getting a, call it like a consolation prize. They get to know the other council members and they might get appointed to planning commission, right? In uh, some other yeah. cities, you know, uh, council will appoint people to planning commission they know well and that they trust. Uh, I mean, basically, uh, your city council is voted for by like the people and they want to appoint in committees and commissions people they know. And so, if you kind of just come in blind, like you just apply like out of the blue, very controversial or important commission. In Mountain View, for example, uh, I'll tell you guys a story. I applied for the rental housing committee. Mountain View is one of the few cities in California that has a uh, rent stabilization, kind of a rent control ordinance. I came in, you know, kind of, um, kind of wide-eyed because I didn't know the process too much. Uh, I applied for that commission and I immediately had like some people, uh, a couple people, com commenters in the Mountain View voice kind of um, attack me, you know, saying uh, I'm some yeah. kind of, uh, you know, capitalist libertarian or something, you know, because a uh, long time ago I used to come out to, you know, some San Mateo County libertarian events and stuff. I just thought that was like kind of funny, you know, but um, it just goes to show you like some, some of these boards and commissions, they got a political factor and there's a very very right. vocal pro-tenant, pro-housing group, like in Mountain View, you know, and um, I completely understand, you know, like some of their viewpoints. And I'd probably just say to them, like, you know, if you don't really know, like, somebody, like, you know, you shouldn't, like, go out and, like, blast them on the internet. But, you know, I, I want to throw that out to the listeners just to know, like, you know, you're throwing your hat in the ring in local politics sometimes when you join these committees and commissions. So, you know, politics is a full contact sport, man. So, 
you know, you gotta strap up your helmet and shoulder pads and you you might take a blow or two, you know. But uh yeah, you know, I didn't get appointed to that committee, you know, it wasn't a big deal. But what I changed, you know, in my future approach was, you know, come election season I got to know, you know, just to a small degree, like some of the council members and stuff that I thought were, you know, super cool and nice. I know uh, a couple of them now. And uh, you know, that kinda helped me get, I think, on the investment review committee. You know, not as not as like a favor, but you know, really they knew who I was like as a person. They knew I wasn't gonna be some kind of a wacko. Right. You don't want to hand you don't want to hand yeah. over like um, you know, a financial committee to somebody who has no idea what they're doing or who might, you know, use it as a platform for something goofy, right? Like they want to know, you know, are you engaged with the city? Are you a helpful person? Do you get along with people? Do you have the credentials to back it up? And it turned out, you know, I did. So um, you know, I think that's going well. I haven't participated in more than one meeting yet because they meet more like a daily basis with the investment results, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. excited like to, to participate like on an ongoing basis. Um, so then you asked about for-profit boards and nonprofit boards. Those are two really two different things. I'll talk about the nonprofit one first because it's a little easier to deal with. Really, really like okay. uh, a nonprofit board, you know, to be honest, a little bit easier to get on. What nonprofit boards really look for is they look for people who have kind of areas of expertise and knowledge that the nonprofits might not have. So me coming from a CPA background, having audited nonprofits, um, you know, that's kind of something a lot of nonprofits actually kind of look for. Um, you know, so you don't have to get too fancy. I mean, um, one great resource, I think, here in California is we have a website called, it's on the Attorney General site, the Register Registrar of uh, Charitable Trusts is kind of a database, and there's a filing requirement annually for certain nonprofits that uh, fundraise and, and get contributions, is they have to report some financial data to the California State Attorney General. So, you know, I visited the site sometimes, you know, just to see, okay, what do I have in Mountain View, Palo Alto, East Palo Alto? What kind of nonprofits do we have? And that's actually how I found uh, this ecumenical hunger program, EHP. And, you know, I was attracted to it because I think the organization has a really great track record. Uh, There's a heavy volunteer base. You know, they work with a couple other reputable nonprofits like Second Harvest and Silicon Valley. And, you know, they fulfill like a really good, um, you know, community need, which is uh, not only uh, feeding people, which I think is, you know, the number one part of their mission. People go to their East Palo Alto facility. Uh, and they've been serving people in the pandemic, too. You drive up with your car, they load up your car with groceries and kind of um, you know, stuff from the local grocery store. Really good stuff, too. They um they got some donations from uh, Drakers out in Los Altos, kind of, a, I think, a more expensive grocery store. And, you know, they, they give away some really good stuff sometimes. Costco is a big donor. All the Costco's in the Bay Area, uh, close to Palo Alto, Redwood City, I think, uh, Mountain View, Sunnyvale. Uh, they've all, I think, I think donated. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just really attracted to the org because I think the board members are really sincere, the people work with the organization sincere. They're long established, like in Palo Alto, East Palo Alto. And, you know, they really arose kind of out of that 
organization really arose kind of out of that disparity between, you know, Palo Alto and East Palo Alto, you know, not to, you know, take a political, you know, um, or current event swing to the topic, but, you know, East Palo Alto, you know, is, is a red line district kind of city, man. And um, I've, uh, I've looked at some old Palo Alto publications just talking crap about East Palo Alto and like, you know, it's where like they put all the minorities, man. And for a long time, East Palo Alto did not share in the prosperity of Palo Alto. And that's like an undeniable kind of historical fact. They basically, let's just be honest, they just put all the black people in East Palo Alto and said, you can't, you know, wink, wink, you can't, you can't live in yeah. Palo Alto um, until that fair uh, FHA, Fair Housing Act was passed. But even then, you know, there's just kind of, you know, you're desirable or undesirable. And so ESP has been a for a lot been around for a long time and I'm really uh you know really happy to volunteer for them. Um you know they've I think grown quite a bit. I think they have they're in a tremendous position opportunity now to do even more. Uh you know and I'm continuing to like look forward you know to work with them. The people on the board are really exceptional. You got lawyers at top top international um law firms. Um you know, I, I've I've kind of got a uh, even though I'm a CPA, I got kind of a modest background. I think compared, you know, some of the board members are really shakers and movers. So, you know, answer the nonprofit question, it's really a matter of like find a nonprofit that kind of resonates with you. You know, check yourself if you've got some kind of um, special skill that you can bring to the organization. And it doesn't have to. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be a CPA. There's one board member who was a general contractor. And he volunteered a lot mm -hmm. of time to do repairs and lend his expertise when they hired people to do construction on the site. Um, you know, even if you don't have any kind of special skill, just ask. Sometimes people want board members yeah. who have like a really good network. I think, you know, realtors do really well. Anybody that's very public facing, you know, they do well as board members. Nonprofits are looking for all types. Now, to go to for-profit, for-profit is a little bit difficult. They tend to pull people with, you know, deep industry experience in those areas. Um, to pull people from like firms like the big four. Um, and board members are predominantly, I'd say, either big four, iBanking, consulting like MBB, McKinsey, Bain, Boston, you know, th those kind of backgrounds, uh, venture capital, uh, hedge. They want, you know, people who are board members with a finance mind to to really know that finance side, right? And, you know, investment banking, whether on the buy, sell, or sell, you know, you really get deep into valuation of companies, you know, and, and really how, what, what makes a company like profitable or a good investment. That makes a good board member from that side. On the CPA side, you know, a lot of Boards have an audit committee and they love having kind of audit partners on there, uh, you know, to give extra assurance that um, the audit's being looked at properly. And then, you know, other board members are just people with deep industry experience. I mean, I work with some clients that are in um, the biotech sector and the people on their board, sometimes they're just, you know, doctors or sometimes they're people with uh, scientific research backgrounds. But I'd say, you know, if you want to get on a for-profit board, 
you know, the best way to really do it, and I haven't cracked the code yet myself, but I'd say, you know, check what your expertise is in what industry, and you need to have honestly really deep expertise. You know, if you're like, um, if you're like an engineer with a particular discipline, you'll probably be a good candidate as a board member, you know, for a company that does substantially the similar thing that you know well. And you've got to know it to like a deep degree. So you've got to have some kind of track record of success, I think. Um, if you're on a kind of a startup board, there might be a little bit more kind of leeway there. But uh, established company, yeah, you're going you're gonna to have to know somebody for one. And for two, you're going to have to have something deep. So again, I, I haven't cracked that code yet myself, but I would love someday you know, later in my career, you know, serve on a for-profit board and help help uh, some companies, you know, uh, mission, right, as a board member. So. Yeah, and I feel that with... Yeah, and I feel that profit with both or profit or non-profit, you, you have, to find, out you, you have to find out what your expertise is and how it can apply to the organization that Absolutely. you want to be a part yep. of. Yep. So, yeah. So as we conclude our episode here, Doug, we, we usually go through a rapid fire uh, type section in which I will ask you eight questions and each question you would have to answer it in eight seconds or less. So it's kind of like All an right. eight for eight um, kind of platform here. There we go. So you ready? All right. So first question here, eight seconds right. or less. All right. What is something that many people take seriously but should current events. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Current events. So uh, they're watching the news way too much and probably take in every single negativity out of that. Yeah. Man, lives, huh? What I could tell to your <laughs> listeners is just like far too many people like are, are doing life in the passenger seat. Like I've done a lot to detox from my phone, get off news feeds. I mean, I think, you know, I'm very rarely on Facebook. I even just reactivated just for business purposes, you know, not too long ago, but it was a period of like, I think five or six years, I didn't even have like yeah. a Facebook account. And, you know, to some extent you want to be looped in, but to some extent, even the news is a distraction from your goal. You don't want to, you don't want to lend yourself to like um, energy, energy vampires, you know, Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you that uh, the news is just something that could be avoided here. And you just don't want to get caught up watching news, being on Twitter, being on Facebook and just kind of having like an argumentative approach every day right, towards right. other people. All Second right. question for you, Doug, would be which historical figure wins the award for being the most hardcore? Hmm. I'm probably going over my eight seconds and most hardcore. The first name I thought of was uh, uh, General Patton, to be honest. Yeah, from World War yeah. II. And um, yeah, just, you know, the reason for that's just, uh, you know, if anybody hasn't seen like the movie Patton or read, uh, or read his uh, biography in a book, yeah, that dude, that dude was hardcore. That dude wanted to after World War II. <laughs> to keep going past Germany and just steamroll over the Russians. Like the guy didn't want to, 
that guy didn't want to stop yeah. the war. And I think, you know, the, the theory goes that they had to kind of pull the plug on him and, um, you know, uh, you know, put a hard stop in order to get him to stop because uh, the dude was, uh, dude was all about the fight, man. <laughs> and if our listeners want to watch yeah, the movie, it's P-A-T-T-O-N, called Patton. Patton. Cool. All right, third question. What is a TV show that you've binged on lately and look? Oh, man, that, that that's going to be the hardest question because I haven't watched uh, watched TV in a <laughs> long time. Um, I'd probably say, I mean, the last series I binged was probably the Witcher series, I think. So, I mean, that came out a little okay. while ago, so that's English. probably showing how long uh, it's been since I really sat down and watched you know, TV, but, uh, yeah, the Witcher series uh, on Netflix, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was a big yeah, fan yeah. of like the Witcher three game. I mean, I sunk probably 150 hours on it and you know what? Like people talk crap about games. My wife does. She's just like, how could you, how could you be an adult mm-hmm. and play like video games, that game and just the, um, you know, the background that came from the books, you know, with the Polish author, it's so well fleshed out. I thought that game was, um, you know, better than any movie I've watched, better than any story I've read. Just one of the best gaming experiences like, of all time. And so, uh, you know, the Netflix show, I think I think does a pretty good job. I think it's not perfect, but I was pleasantly surprised by, uh, by yeah. the acting and the quality. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question: What piece of media? It could be a book, movie, or TV show, etc. That made you change your view of the world. Huh. Book, TV show, or movie? Right? Media or movie? Or movie. And it could be it could be a, a movie that you've uh, that you mentioned already here. Oh <laughs> uh, no, I want to give a good answer. Um, well, let me tell you, like, uh, does it have to be a recent or just anything? No, it could be anything. Yeah, be I mean, from one of the life. books that was really influential for me that changed the way I viewed the world was um, uh, 1984, Orwell's 1984. I read that back in high school and. It just completely changed my view on like government and authority and control. And, you know, it's crazy. Like with every passing year, especially as we get into this age where we talk about, you know, uh, the surveillance state and, you know, Google, you know, doing privacy things, you know, it just becomes more relevant, the concept of the, you know, big brother the authoritarian government, you know, the NSA, you know, spying on spying on your own citizens. Um, it's almost like so many concepts in that book. I don't even know, just like influence, like current events or things that are happening in our society. And so, you know, the book yeah. left a really strong impression to me, like in high school, like, I think it was really kind of the cornerstone that formed a lot of my, um, my political ideas and just my view of like the government. Uh, I thought it was a little unusual when I was young where I just, I just didn't have a great deal of trust in the government. Even back then, I think when people would call, 
you know, the nineties when we we're growing up, like simpler times, right? I just still like didn't have like trust. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is just like kind of the walls, uh, you know, in recent years just cu- coming down and kind of exposing like there there's more than meets the eye. There's geo geopolitical aspirations, you know, there's uh corporations, you know, like some people say like Facebook is like meddling, like in geopolitical affairs. And it's just, um, you know, the book was a huge influence, I think, in all that kind of, kind of opening my, opening my eyes to, you know, not everything government is, you know, benevolent, right? And there's kind of an insidious side to like all this stuff, surveillance, you know, the surveillance state and control, um, you know, now we're kind of moving to a point where I think, um, we're probably more like a, a less cool, like a cyberpunk future where uh, corporations control qu- quite a bit. I mean, uh, what's really funny this morning on a related note is I found out I got banned from my Nextdoor account. And um, I was talking to somebody about this, mm. like just, um, you know, how we're so reliant on social media for communicating that at some point when when you ostracize or permanently ban someone from a social media platform, you know, the question arises, is that like taking your freedom of speech away, right? Because if you're so reliant on it, and that's mm-hmm. where all the action's kind of happening, like when you take that away from somebody, um, you know, it's just nuts. There's actually a court case out there right now against yeah. that Nextdoor platform. It's called West versus Nextdoor. Uh, a guy got permanently banned in Florida from the Nextdoor platform and he's suing them on some court precedent where I'm not too familiar with the case but there's somebody who committed some kind of heinous crime um, you know who got banned from a particular social media website and the court in that case found it was kind of discriminatory you know, to that guy to take away. And they said it was a First Amendment thing, right? And so I think we're going to see that battle happening more and more and more as, you know, I think even seeing the current news, right? They took, uh, didn't they take Trump off Twitter, like, permanently? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they they banned him. I don't know if that was permanent or temporary, but it definitely happened. So, you know, it just begs the question, like, you know, regardless of, like, your feelings about Trump, you know, do you treasure the First Amendment and freedom of speech? You know, and does a private company really have unlimited power to say who can and cannot be on the platform? As as those platforms become more and more prominent and important, it does that arise to the level of taking away someone's freedom of speech? So, yeah, man. 1984, that's uh, that was a hell of a book. Touches on all these topics. Yeah. All right, 1984. Yep, definitely yep. got to look into that one, too. Next question for you, Doug. If you can describe your life in one word, what would it be? Man. Interesting. <laughs> this, interesting. This, yeah. Interesting. That's a good one. I like that. All right, next question. For your children here, um, which career do you hope not to get into? And which career? <laughs> was that the you... second part of the question? <laughs> well, my next question was going to yeah. be, my next question after that was going to be, which career do you hope they do not pursue? But what is just one career and one, like just one, um, yeah, just one type of career you 
well, I'll tell you, get into. I would hope at least one of my kids gets into uh, engineering, you know, something with computers. That's something like I wanted to get into, but yeah. I will say, you know, the reason, and it's not like, cause I'm pushing STEM careers and I'm being like a tiger dad or a tiger mom or something. And this is the way to go. I would push engineering because I believe, you know, in the future, that's going to be a career where you can really be creative and self-actualized. And a lot of people who are in engineering, computer science programming will tell you that the field is a lot more creative than uh, people put out, um, you know, put it out to be just because, you know, solutions to certain programming problems or engineering problems, they can be really, really creative in nature. And it's not just kind of uh, pounding out code, although, I mean, there's a lot of jobs where, you know, you're sitting there, you know, pounding out code. But, um, you know, once you get to the kind of higher levels, it's kind of like accounting. I mean, there, there's bookkeeping, right, which is really basic level work. But as you, you know, hone your craft, there's really judgmental and complex areas where, you know, a CPA's responsibility kind of like resembles more like a lawyer interpreting either the tax code or, you know, the accounting codification. But, um, you know, what I feel about engineering is like in the future, in our society, uh, engineering is where you're going to be able to put yourself like kind of in the driver's seat of the career and life. You're able to create something from nothing. And I've got a, I've got a lot of respect for people in um, careers where they're creators, uh, you know, you know, rather than just kind of service yeah. providers i kind of dump on my uh, my own career sometimes the cpa and and devalue it because i'm like well you know what what do i really create you know if the tax code wasn't so complicated would i really have a job you know probably not you know is is my job like important i've wrestled with that kind of concept too and you know i do think my job is important and you know um you know, I probably should dump on it a little less, but that kind of brings me to the second half of the question. What career would I not want my kids to do? I mean, I kind of blurted out accounting as a half serious, half joke. Um, you know, but the reason I, I say it is mm-hmm. just because I feel with accounting to some degree, especially like if you go into public accounting and you carry your career forward, um, one problem I think with the career is it's very grindy. And I think, you know, the, the price you pay for the effort you put in, uh, the reward is not equal, I think, to the effort. I think, you know, all the effort I put in, you know, to get my CPA license to kind of struggle in my career to get that marquee experience with the big four, um, you know, as well as uh, the master's degree I'm taking now in the business. Um, I don't think people really understand the grind, like when you're involved in public accounting, like what you really go through. Uh, I appreciate like it being kind of like a crucible and making me into like a more resilient person who just, I can put up with hell long hours. I can put up with a lot of uncertainty and BS. Um, but you know, on that token, like it's just not a career. I think, you know, in hindsight, that would be, the most rewarding, I think, for, for my children, right? Like, you can do really well in accounting. I think, like, you yeah. know, I, I started my own business. And I really think that's kind of the key is to, you know, own your own practice or arise to the level of, like, a partner 
and then have all these people kind of multiplying your efforts and doing work for you. But, you know, let's be honest, you know, 99.99% of accounts, right, they're going to be working for somebody else. They're going to be collecting a paycheck. And what accounting really represents to me is just a golden ticket to the middle class. You're not really like the upper middle class. You're certainly better than the lower middle class. But, you know, I, I even look around the Bay Area, you know, you got kids coming out of college, right, with engineering who really don't know anything. This might change, by the way. And again, 150K, like yeah. right out of school here in the Bay Area. You know, then I look at San Francisco, like Bay Four. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're an audit staff, fresh out of college, staff one. Yeah, you'd be getting like 65, maybe 70 in that range. And while the increase in your salary is a very stark, you know, upward from there, you're probably putting in a good several years before you crack the six-figure mark. And then to even get to that 150K of uh, entry-level engineering salary, you know, you've got to be like manager level, right, to be honest. And I know some people in public accounting that are manager level who are not making 150K yet, and they're about seven years in. So if you really think about the cost-benefit, right, between this accounting career and engineering, we're talking about seven years making, you know, half or, you know, a little less than half, right, of uh, entry-level engineering salary. And if you tuck that money away and you talk to a lot of these people into personal finance, right, um, that early contribution to, like, a 401K or retirement, you know, pays you dividends, I mean, <laughs> quite literally, like, over over the course of even seven years of investment, right? So, you know, you want to maximize your earning potential. And, you know, I probably, it probably sounds like I'm doing double speak because a lot of the uh, concepts I'm talking to you, I acquired like in my accounting career, right? And, you know, you know the, the converse of all this is like, yep. if I did engineering, would I be able to talk about all of these personal finance, tax, accounting topics so fluently? You know, probably not. And I know a lot of engineers make like investment mistakes. So this is a very tough question. I think, you know, I'm going to have multiple kids. Let's just say maybe the firstborn one. I don't want him to be an accountant, but anyone else, anyone else that follows can take over the family <laughs> business. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Last question for you, Doug. What is your favorite beverage and why? It could be non-alcoholic. <laughs> My or wife's alcoholic. gonna like laugh if I say this, but uh, mineral water. Uh, mineral water, yeah. Mineral water, huh? Is there something different about mineral water as opposed to <laughs> it's other just types more of fun. <laughs> water? Or... You know, let me put it this way: like <laughs> since I've been on like a health kick, you know, um, I, I try not to drink soda. And, uh, you know, carbonated beverages, let's just be yeah. honest, they're more fun and uh, they, they taste better. Um, one I particularly like, and I think, you know, I don't know if too many people know, know, know this brand, Topo, Topo Chico Mineral Water. They're all over no, like Texas. Heard of that one. It's imported from um, somewhere in Mexico. They have this lime-flavored uh, Topo Chico from uh, Monterey, Mexico. And I, I kid you not, it's the best, like, mineral water, like, I've ever had. Like, I, I, I've drank, you know, 
Perrier and, you know, what's, what's the other one? One from Italy. And then you got, you know, LaCroix is not even mineral water. It's just like, I think Detroit tap water. That's just uh, carbonated. But this Topo Chico is um, really good, especially the lime. Um, it's actually a funny story that goes uh, with this Topo Chico. Is um, Supposedly the well in Mexico where they bottle this water, um, there's a, some Aztec legend or something that a, something like an Aztec princess was uh, falling ill and bathed in the waters of this uh, Topo Chico um, well or reservoir or whatever it is. It was cured of like all of her um, illnesses. So this is kind of funny crossover with this, uh, what is it, Ponce de Leon kind of uh, fountain of youth thing going with this. But who knows if that's all true, but the water is damn good. So I, try, I, definitely, I definitely try some. <laughs> yes, yes. And just, yes, keep drinking that water, guys. That's how Tom Brady is. Played to he's like forty three or something. Proper right now, hydration. Right? So. Proper hydration is taking that guy to another <laughs> Super Bowl again, man. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. As we wrap up this week's episode, where's one place people can find? Yeah, you, you can find me at cna.cpa. That's my firm. I've got my solo practice website still up. It's radkecpa. R A D T K E C P A dot com. Although, you know, the CNA one is going to be, you know, the main one to go to. And that's got all my contact information on there. Okay. Uh, if you're, if you're a, uh, if you got a tax question, business tax question, um, you know, I'm always available to your listeners, you know, for, uh, for tax, tax questions. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming on to the show this week, Doug. Uh, really appreciate kind of learning more about your journey i know uh you know we've known each other for quite a while but uh just kind of going over all the details about your um life and and how you became a tax director today is uh you know very intriguing to me and i've always enjoyed uh your insight um as well and and all the topics yeah that thanks for having today. me it so thanks fun. for coming on all right guys well that uh concludes uh this week's episode here 